Hello and welcome into another episode of Gifted Kid Messy Adult, the show where potential went to die. I am your host, Ellie Michaels. I use she, her. I am your host, Jessica Michaels, and I use she, they. And today we're talking about friends. And why, no, I haven't actually forgotten about you. I just forgot you existed. <laughs> so what do you mean by that, Ellie? Uh seems to be a kind of common neurodivergent thing that if you are not in front of someone, if someone has not interacted with you in the past 12 hours, you kind of just forget they exist, but not in like a malicious way or a non-caring way. Just like, oh yeah. Oh, right. Right. That happened. It's like thinking about the air filter in your car. You just, you, you don't think about it until the guy at Jiffy Lube is like, that'll be another 40 bucks. And you're like, uh, fine. So we started off this episode by telling people that if they're friends with neurodivergent people, they will suddenly become as relevant as the air filter that you forget in your car. See, that's always the thing that gets... <laughs> there is no tactful way to say that my brain forgot that you existed. Right. All right. So there is a phenomenon among neurodivergent people that makes it difficult, I think, for people to make friends and develop lasting friendships. So if you meet somebody and are able to make them your friend, actually maintaining that friendship over a period of time is very, very difficult. And I think that goes to one thing that you're talking about, which is we kind of have an out of sight, out of mind type of thing. And kind of like we completely have that thing. Well, I'm trying to make the neurotypicals feel better. So we kind of have a thing that our brain just sort of forgets that we have relationships outside of people that we're directly looking at. And it can be a really long time before we remember to engage with people again. And it gets worse, I think, as you get older and people move away and you aren't necessarily seeing the same people every day at school. It can be especially difficult to maintain long-term relationships. So having friendships is something that often neurodivergent people, so people with uh, ADHD, people that are gifted, people that are autistic, and any other thing that might fall under that umbrella, um, it can be hard for us to develop and maintain long-term relationships. Has that been something that has affected you in particular? Is the space pope reptilian? Good God. Yeah, no. I mean, I specifically come back to like that awful 20-somethings uh, relationship that we all had at some point that you tried doing long distance and then just like legit forgot that they existed. And then like, hey, where have you been? And what about us? Like, what? Oh, my God. Holy crap. Yes, that entire thing I had. Or you'll forget to message somebody or... You just won't message somebody for months and months and months, and then they do, and then it's like, oh, yeah, it's exactly like it was 10 minutes ago. That 10 minutes was six months. It works better. I think it's easier for people to relate when we talk in specifics. So if you have a specific one you want to share, go ahead. If not, I can share one. Uh, you go ahead while I think of something tactful. Well, I think for me, one of my... So if we're talking adulthood friendships... One of my biggest challenges is that I tend to make all my friends through work. 
which is one of the reasons why this topic came up today is because I recently had a change in my employment status. And a lot of the people that I used to socialize with, I don't have that connection with anymore. So going from having somebody that I talked to every single day for five years and, you know, we would text on the weekends, we would text at night, all of a sudden, because we don't work together anymore, I don't really have a reason to reach out to that person. Or even though they reach out to me and we, you know, have some good conversation when they do that, I don't really have a compelling piece of conversation to keep up with them because work was always our starting point for anything that we talked about or anything that was our frame of reference. So once we get to a point where we don't have that thing in common anymore and that person isn't actively reaching out to me, even though we talked every day for five years, it will never enter my mind to reach out to that person because what would I say? What would we talk about? What on earth, like I have no idea how people maintain a long-term relationship with another adult that they're not married to or sleeping with. And that is something that is really common among neurodivergent people is that we don't always know how to maintain a relationship with somebody when the big thing that we had in common changes or goes away. You look really cute with that little smile. You just you just had a cute little smile. It's going to be great for everybody who cannot see what we're doing right now. But when you edit the video, you should keep that. And it was adorable. Check us out on YouTube. See the pretty smile. Um, no, exactly. Literally that. Uh, like probably like a year ago, I was still really quite quite ill that uh, with my chronic illness and my autoimmune madness um but i had also just started transitioning and mostly what i could do was sit at my desk and smoke a bunch of weed and that gets kind of lonely so i became a very active member of an online like trans girl discord where we talked about more than just fallout new vegas but a lot about fallout but point being I was very, very close with all of these people. And I say was because I have since gotten better and I can do more than sit at my desk and smoke weed and sit on a video call. And so I am. And I've kind of just forgotten my dozen online friends. Which is amazing to me because that was all encompassing for a while. Anytime it was the I... entirety of my social life. It was like yeah. all of my friends. Uh, Anytime uh... I needed you, that's what you were doing is you were, you were on that discord. So yeah, mm -hmm. that is even though I, I witnessed it and I know that phenomenon happens. It is still surprising to me that these people who, I mean, and I didn't know any of them, but I would hear, you know, snippets or you would give me an update of how your day was. And so I'd hear screen names of people occasionally that now even I kind of miss because mm -hmm. that was how involved you were with that with that group. And so I think it's hard for people to understand how something could be or someone could be so important in your life. And then one day, just not. 
Yeah. I think that's tough for people to, to understand. And just a little bit more clarification. Uh, this was the kind of discord that has a video call, like the best restaurants have a, a, a pot of stock. Like it's just always been there and it will always be there. There's like two people on the video call or there's like eight or there's like 20 and it's just always kind of ongoing. Uh, and that's what we sat in and hang out in. And initially I picked it as, well, I guess it kind of picked me, but it was, uh, it was a, a small ongoing support group and a bunch of trans people when I didn't know anything about being trans. Uh, you know, they helped me learn a whole crap ton about the endocrinology and the biology and the sociology of being trans and what to do and how to advocate for yourself and what to watch out for. Um, and it was a huge, huge, huge part of my identity and my life. And then we moved and then circumstances changed. And it's not that I can't sit here doing that. It's just that I don't anymore. And I've just, I've always had online friends. I've, you know, I have like three or four people I talk to that I sometimes see in real life. And then everybody else just kind of lives in my phone. Because you grew up on the internet. Yes, I am, from, I am the from the internet. I uh, never learned how to drive and I never learned how to type. I just had uh, AOL Instant Messenger and video games. And everything important that you needed to know in life, you learned from AOL Instant Messenger. I think that's a lesson for all of us. Uh, for sure, because we turned out great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, I, if you want some poignant lyrics to add as your away message, were they away message? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. before we had like statuses, we had the away message. You put so much thought into that. Oh, dozens and dozens of those saved. Just gone. You had to have the right amount of ennui and the right amount of intrigue to make people wonder why you were gone and if you were okay. And (laughs) uh, that was really, really a way to engage with people. So uh, that worked out well for everybody. It was, it was important self-expression. You had your specific font and the color and the color of your background. And, you know, you meet somebody who's comic sans and bright yellow I don't think we're going to be friends so much. (laughs) But at least in the Discord with video chatting, like you knew you were not in danger really of chatting with people who might be, you know, 50 years older than you and have some pedophilic tendencies. So in terms of making a relationship or making friendships, it's actually a fairly healthy way to do it. I think, you know, accessing those friendships online. So I think those types of groups have been really helpful for neurodivergent people who maybe would never develop the same kind of relationships in real life. Developing those online friendships and those communities can be really, really helpful. I think that when it comes to online relationships for younger people now who may be neurodivergent, I think that it is likely that that has become a substitute for people for, especially when you're younger and school is a really terrible environment for most neurodivergent people. Uh, even most most parents who thought they were doing such a good thing by putting us in gifted programs did, never really knew the depth of hell that many of us were subjected to. So on online relationships, I think starting honestly with my generation, really became the thing, the the refuge for a lot of neurodivergent kids because 
as bad as everything was at school, I could be anybody who I wanted online and we could, I just was able to connect with people and somehow all of those things that made making friends in real life difficult melted away. I wasn't the weird kid or I wasn't the fat kid, which is the kiss of death in, in junior high. And, you know, especially when you are a, a, uh, you know, somebody who is assigned female at birth and still presenting as femme in, in junior high, being fat is just about the worst thing that you could be. Um, and so the bullying and things that existed for me and for a lot of neurodivergent kids that tended to not happen as much online for me, for my generation, because online was a totally separate thing and a separate world. What I don't know now, though, is with social media, when kids are not interacting with new populations like we did, but their social media seems to be just entwined in their daily life. It's not like you go home and jump on the computer and have something new. It's your social media is just meshed in with your day to day. I wonder mm -hmm. how that affects people now. And if neurodivergent kids now have those refuges from social, from, you know, real life that we had, or if it's making it worse for them now because of all the online bullying and harassment that could happen when you interact with either trolls or with people from your, your real life that, that, you know, that can just, it's just another forum to be bullied in. Yeah, that's always the context I hear it in is that like you can't escape bullying by going to social media because it's there too. And it's actually worse there because yeah. it's in your hand, it's in your pocket, it's in your brain. They have access to you. Um, it's a, it's a, a self-care thing that we actually talk about is that like no one is entitled to access to you. Um, and I think a lot of the online stuff was I'm a freaking weirdo. Like I am, I am not a normal stock person in just about any way. Uh, neurodivergent, purple-haired trans girl who can speak Elvish and Klingon. Like I'm probably not going to run into somebody at the grocery store who's also neurodivergent, brightly hair-colored, <laughs> transgender, and obsessed with sci-fi fantasy to that level. That, uh, I might go home with the wrong person. That would be really confusing for me. So I'm very glad that there is only one of you in any given area, any given supermarket, at least. Yeah. I mean, there's like one of me per 100 million capital or some crap. I don't know. That's a, that's too big. There aren't a lot of me. And I don't actually get along very well with a lot of people. So I can really expand that pool and widen that net and specify it with internet people. Uh, I mean, one of my closest friends lives in London and we've never met and we may well never meet, but that's fine because we connect on a fairly fundamental level. And if all you have access to safely is the people around you, that's just really not going to happen. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's kind of a trope or a stereotype of neurodivergent people or of autistic people for as much as the general population understands neurodiversity. Often it's this picture of an autistic perhaps that they have, but there is this idea often of a neurodivergent person being a loner. 
and being somebody who is kind of weird, kind of off to the side, kind of on their own. Do you think that that is accurate, first of all? And if so, why do you think that pattern exists? Why is it easier for neurodivergent people to end up by themselves? Is it because it's just hard to remember people? Is it because of not knowing how to engage or interact with people? Like, why do you think that happens? I think a lot of it comes back down to the neurotypical neurodivergent divide, especially when we're talking about adolescence and important formative years. The the neurodivergent brain seems to develop at different times and in different functions than the neurotypical brain, where like our colleagues were learning social skills by being kids and being awful to each other. Meanwhile, our brains are like, hey, guess what? You understand calculus. Run with it. And the environment around you looks for something you're good at and to push you into. And so that's what we got pushed into. That Those were the skills we were developing. Uh, it's, and it's kind of like how queer folks tend to have their adolescence in their 20s once we're out of high school. Like the 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 cishets get to date around and be idiots in high school and then there just aren't enough queers around <laughs> for the queers to do that. And then it takes until we get out of high school and then we're in our 20s and then we get to be uh, ridiculous and irresponsible and growing those skills, basically. And just the, the whole part of our world built for neurotypicals as it is, is grading on the neurodivergent mind. And when you have to go to school all day, every day, it's burning what little social skills and social energy you have. And so I think that's where the hyperlexia comes in. That's where the, the spooky reading girl, where we need to- Can you to define escape. hyperlexia? What's hyperlexia? Oh, uh, hyperlexia is- that thing we did when we were kids that now we think we're bad because we can't do where you read like three books a day for five straight years, because that's a form of escape. That's a trauma response and a way to protect and heal ourselves. And you don't have when, when you're spending all day just trying to deal with the fact that you're in a school full of people who are loud and confusing and, and who are a danger to you. And who are a danger to you. I mean, there was like the one gay kid in my high school. Even if I had known I was trans at that age, I don't know if I could have safely done anything about it. We've used up all of those social spoons just trying to survive. Spoons. You talk about spoons. So there's oh. a, a theory that talks about chronic illness or I think disability and trying to explain what that's like to people by saying essentially... If, you know, I start my day with 10 spoons, then each activity that I do costs a certain number of spoons. Going to work may take three spoons and getting out of bed and getting dressed may take a spoon. And so soon you run out of spoons, meaning you can't do anything. And every activity that you take on involves a certain number of spoons. Some things like maybe sleep or time away from people give you spoons back, but very few things exist that give you spoons back. Mostly things take away spoons. So when you hear people in the neurodiversity community or the chronic illness or disability community talking about, I have no spoons left, it basically means I have no energy left, either mental or physical, to do whatever this thing is. And that can even include thinking. 
I don't have mm-hmm. enough spoons. I was um, talking to our friend uh, Raven online the other day, and we were trying to set up an appointment for today, and uh, they were out of spoons to have a pun war, which I had been uh, egging them into pretty strongly. <laughs> so they didn't have enough spoons to come up with any pun puns, and uh, so I had to supply them. But one of the things, <laughs> so that's spoon theory, that'll come up a lot. That'll be a recurring thing. So one of the things I think that is interesting is, you know, you talked about how we, part of just being alive every day took so much energy that you don't even have the the spoons or the energy to make friends or deal with friendships on a day-to-day basis. I think also, to me, a lot of the things that my peers as kids or even as adults, a lot of the things that they found fun were things that would be given to me as punishments in hell. Like (laughs) going to parties, honestly, I would rather be strung up by my hair. That's a bad example because I might want to be strung up by my hair anyway. That is a bad example. But I would rather be- Family show, Jess, family show. That's right. I would rather- chew glass than go to a party right now because parties are loud there's Uh a lot of people that i don't know i was Uh always the person who like followed behind my best friend like a puppy because Uh i knew her and so i would talk to her but I didn't want to talk to people I didn't know. I didn't want to do whatever dance dance revolution thing that they were doing. Or I didn't really want to play beer pong. Like all of these things that at any age, whether it was in my teens, whether it was in my 20s, if it was at college or in my adulthood, there's just a lot of things that are kind of quote unquote normal for people to enjoy doing that I don't want to do. I don't want to go clubbing. It's loud. My feet hurt. I can't hear anybody talk. I'm so uncoordinated. I don't want to dance under any circumstance. If I am dancing, somebody needs to take my keys away because Mm -hmm. things have gotten bad. I am no longer safe. Um, And so as I talk to more neurodivergent people, it seems like there are common things that we find fun that most people typically wouldn't. Just about every neurodivergent person I know has like a textbook that they have read like it is trash fiction. Mine Mm -hmm. was on the French and Indian War. Uh, That's what I read over our honeymoon was a textbook on the French and Indian War because I was relaxing Mm -hmm. and that's what you do. Or they have hobbies that just people don't find appealing. And so I wonder if something if that has to do with it also when it comes back to friendships is just even if we had the energy and had the spoons to deal with forming relationships that just the things that we tend to be interested in are so far and far away from what other people find normal and fun that we couldn't relate to other people anyway well you and i had a company over like last week or something and All we did for several hours was the three of us sat in silence and worked on a puzzle together. And I don't mean like we didn't say anything. We really didn't say a lot. 
we said the occasional thing about the puzzle or something funny that happened this week, but there was no music playing. There was no TV on. I don't think we were even like eating or drinking. We were just sitting there in silence working on a puzzle together. And it was amazing. I want to do that again. Like, yes. Okay, fine. I will clean the apartment so it's presentable so someone can come do that again. Let's do that again. And that's not fun. Like, hey, nerd typical person, would you like to go sit silently in the same room and read books? Oh, no, not the same book, different books. And then occasionally tell each other about it, but then go back to reading. No? Oh, okay. That's called called parallel play, and it's an important developmental milestone for children, but neurodivergent people often love that that's love that. often how we love that often how best. we relate to people right we should invite them back to puzzle time again that was good we should do we that. should invite them back to puzzle time plus then we clean the apartment yes and that's an adhd productivity hack for those of you looking for those if you can't bring yourself to do something recreate the circumstances in which you will do it so we will clean the apartment if people are coming over so sometimes you gotta invite people over so we clean the apartment I mean, nothing motivates you like sheer shame and utter terror. Should we take this moment to introduce the concept of Professor Matt? Our professor, producer Matt. He could be a professor if he wants. He's our producer, uh, not professor. We're going to professor. We need running jokes for the show, so it's Professor Matt. All right, so Professor Matt is our fantastic producer for the show. And he and I actually, I don't even remember how we met, but when we were about like, 21 very 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 long time ago and and in much younger days back in the late 1900s back in the late 1900s it was actually very early 2000s very early 2000s because that's when I turned 21 it doesn't sound as funny no but I'm autistic and so we've got to be accurate so carry on (laughs) 2000s but I was doing I just started doing stand-up comedy and he was interested in maybe doing stand-up or, but we were both writing, whatever we were writing. And so we would sit, there was this little like coffee shop or it was a restaurant, um, like a family style restaurant, but they were open very, very late. And so we would sit and sometimes, you know, and there would be various people coming in and out, but we would sit and I was at least chain smoking and drinking coffee because that's what you need to do in the middle of the night. And we would write for hours and we wouldn't talk to each other. It wasn't like we were writing together. It's like we were writing at the same time separately. So that is a perfect example of parallel play. And I I hadn't thought about that in this context, but that's exactly what was happening. That's a perfect example of parallel play. We were both working on our own things, but the idea was you were there together with somebody. And so that made it, I guess, more likely that you would do things, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's an example of body doubling. That's another ADHD hack for people. If you have a hard time getting work done, just work with somebody near you, either virtually or in the same room. And you have a tendency to be able to get your your work done. Um, But that counts as socializing for a lot of a lot of us, that type of activity. And for I find with a lot of neurotypical people, they would want to be engaging that whole time. Like they people did not understand why I would want to just sit and write and not talk. 
I would want to just sit and, and write. And that was me being social. I didn't need to engage with anybody. I didn't need to talk to people. I needed to write. And sometimes I would go to bars to do that. You know, wherever I was, I would just take a notebook with me. And I was just as happy sitting somewhere writing as I, as anybody else would be talking with each other and developing friendships and, and relationships. Now, I have to point out that this is now 20 plus years later and Matt is producing this podcast. So I guess technically this is a friendship that has lasted, but we went many years, decades without, without talking with each other. But I think that's what's interesting about a neurodivergent friendship is I don't even think it wasn't until we started working on this podcast that like we we didn't hang out like we showed up at you know the same shows or open mics occasionally you know throughout the years but we weren't friends like you would think of friends but I saw a post that he made on LinkedIn and I reached out to him immediately about producing this podcast. Yeah, they're we call them comedy friends. They were comedy friends because you have this shared activity or interest, which for us was comedy or stand-up, and you can connect with people over the course of years. But unlike work friends, where you really have to maintain that working type of relationship or that day-to-day -day contact, a comedy friend or a neurodiversity friend is somebody that you could come back to 15 years later and pick up immediately from where you were. Maybe do a 30 second download of, oh, you're married now. You got a kid. That's great. The person I married, they're a woman now. Uh, great. You know, like all those things. It takes just a minute. And then you can pick up right where you were because the thing that connected you wasn't ever sitting and talking to each other for hours. It was the activity. It was comedy. It was writing. So we're able to just jump right back in. And I actually think that's really cool. I don't know that a lot of people get to experience that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I like that. I think that's, that's just neat because if you think of friends as the people you are, are, if you limit your idea of who your friends are to the people around you that you talk to, that can be a really small group. If you open up your mind to, you know, to the idea that your friends, people who could support you, people who could help you out, that really is a list of like everybody you've run across doing your favorite activity over the course of 20 years. I know that I have other people who I did stand up with that I haven't talked to in decades that if we ran into each other or if I needed to reach out, we would connect the same way. And I think that's pretty cool. I think if you look at the definition of friendship from a neurotypical perspective, then it doesn't look like people have a lot of friends. But I think if you define it as, hey, you know, if I connected with this person, would that connection still exist? Would we be able to rekindle it, whatever it was, or if we were involved in that same activity again, you know, would that pick up? I, by that definition of friendship, I think a lot of us have a ton of friends. There's the weird thing about 
comedy and stand-up in particular that it's very isolating. It's a lot of time alone, you know, driving somewhere, sitting somewhere, waiting for a show. You're not really connecting with anybody at the venue because you have to work in a few minutes. Uh, and there's very few people who get that. It's almost like uh, being old army buddies. Like, hey, do you remember that time when we both went through this really weird experience that tested us to our utter limits and possibly put us in terrible danger? Yeah, I remember that too. Wow, that yeah. great. That was great. The number of my stand-up stories where one of us should have died. <laughs> Solid ter 30%. Terribly frightening. But I think, again, the fact that a lot of stand-up comments or stand-up comics are neurodivergent would surprise no one in the stand-up comedy community or the neurodiversity community, really, when you got down to it. But I think... Mm -hmm. It goes to just relating to people in a different way than a lot of other people do and having that be okay. And some of that is, you know, one of the areas that neurodivergent people sort of um, traditionally have challenges is in interpersonal relationships and social situations. So there are rituals when it comes to, I think, developing friendships and developing relationships, whether you're in elementary school or, you know, throughout adulthood, there's just ways that people become friends that seem baffling. I, I felt at many points in my life, I felt like everybody learned how to do something but me. Like, I missed that day of orientation. I missed the friendship day. I mm -hmm. don't know how people become friends. I really don't. And I don't know how they maintain it. And so I think there is a disconnect between kids and their peers and then neurodivergent adults and their peers about what a neurotypical adults would expect people to do if they wanted to be friends, if they wanted to, um, there's like a level of, I think, maybe social interaction, there's a level of talking, there's a level of checking in with each other that I think mm -hmm. is involved in developing friendships, but I don't know how often or how much. I don't know when that becomes creepy. Like, what's the line? I just don't know how that happens. I don't understand the physical mechanics of developing a friendship when you don't have that anchor of comedy or or work. I don't know. And then I don't know how work friends become lifelong friends when you don't talk about work all the time. I don't know how that happens either. There are people who I have been, you know, I had a boss. Um, her name was Stephanie. She's best manager I've ever had in my life. And she quickly became one of my best friends. And then when she retired, I think it was unfathomable to her that we would just not interact after that, but I knew we wouldn't because I don't know how to interact outside of that, that context. And I feel like other people do know how to do that. And so there's, there's that level of social interaction that is challenging for neurodivergent people. In addition to the, the way that we relate to each other in a friendship is, is different. Um, can you explain that the idea of penguin pebbling do you know what i mean when i say penguin pebbling i think so that's why i send people memes i think yes explain meme culture 
in friendships when it comes to neurodivergent folks? Uh, I don't have anything to say. A lot of the times I don't have anything to say, or I have so much to say and so much to talk about that you would just, they would come back to their phone to like three pages of like, holy crap, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. But I don't actually want their advice. I just kind of want to talk out loud for a minute. So usually I will just, it, and I guess it's a very neurodivergent thing of like sitting with a pile of memes and kind of sorting them into, oh, okay, this one is for Jess and that one is for John and this one is for Adam. Do you have and friends then, named John and Adam now? No, I was just looking for names. Oh, okay. Uh, Got it. <laughs> got it. Got it. So you sort part of how you show part of your love language, we'll say, is picking just the right meme for just the right person mm -hmm. and sending them to people. So part, and I think that in itself shows so many elements of neurodiversity. So I wanted to talk about it because I think it's, first of all, here is something about me that I want you to know so I can send you this meme. But it's also, here is a meme that I know you will relate to. And so mm -hmm. I'm sharing this meme with you. Or this is something we will both find funny. Or this is an activity that we both like. But you use it to say so many things. It could be, I'm thinking of you. It could be, I understand what you're going through. It could be, life sucks and I'm sorry. Um, it could be, you know, cheering up. There's so many ways that we use memes to communicate with people that I can send the same, I can send memes to my mother or to other people and they would appreciate them, but I don't get the same. Or do you find that when you have meme exchanges with certain people that it says more or is more meaningful or accomplishes more in the friendship than when you do it with other people? Well, as the burglar in the queen's bedroom said to the policeman, I didn't think I'd get this far. Um, I don't, there's, uh, I think it was like 10 years ago, uh, Pete Holmes was talking about how small talk is kind of equivalent to like a grooming activity. Like it's just kind of reaching out and, and touching somebody on the shoulder and going, hi, I'm still here. Are, are you still here? Um, hi, I'm still on your side. I'm still part of your tribe. And so sending, you know, a, a Warhammer meme to my friend who's into Warhammer is just like, hey, what's up? How are you doing? And then they send me back something Star Trek-y. And that's just like a little mutual acknowledgement of like, hey, I remember that you exist and I have calibrated part of my brain sorting algorithms to include you. Yeah. Well, so the difference to me is when I send somebody neurotypical a meme it, or something that's funny, a funny video. First of all, the selection is much narrower of mm -hmm. what I will send some people. And sometimes I will send a meme to someone in my life and they will reply with, oh, we should talk or, oh, we should jump on the phone or this is a text mm -hmm. conversation. And so they appreciate getting the thing, the meme or the video, but it doesn't say all of the things that that to you or to 
uh, to Raven or to whoever, my kind of neurodivergent grouping, sending that meme would be the conversation. There wouldn't need to be any more because that thing says everything that we need to say. Whereas if I send a funny video to my brother, that's great and he likes it, but it, it doesn't equal, hey, I love you, or this is our, our update and we're remaining connected. There To them, there need to be more things. There needs to be conversation, a video call, a visit, where to me, why do I need to do that? I've done the thing. I sent you the video of the gorilla peeing its into peeing into its own mouth. I know you think that's hilarious. <laughs> that is the relationship. I don't send the video of the gorilla peeing into its own mouth to everybody. I found uh -huh. it. I thought of you and I sent it to you. Mission accomplished. You know what I mean? And I think uh -huh. for a lot of, I think to me, that's part of the difference. I think another difference as we're having this conversation that's coming up to me is that one of the, the biggest interaction challenges that neurodivergent and neurotypical people have is when a neurotypical person says, oh, I have a problem or I have this story. This terrible thing happened to me. I was driving to work and I got a flat tire. And what a neurodivergent person will do, if I say, I was driving to work today and I got a flat tire, what would you respond with? That sucks. Or... Oh my God, this one time I had a flat tire and it led to this entire weird thing that started happening. Yeah, you got your story. And I think neurotypical people more respond with or expect that you will respond with, that sucks. Neurodivergent people tend to respond with, here is a story of how that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And what a neurotypical person hears is, oh, that person now is making this conversation all about them. I have something bad happen to me. And so what? they are no. now saying all of, you know, they're taking it and making it all about them. But what is, when you are responding that way as a neurodivergent person, when you start talking about a thing, how that happened to you, what are you doing? What are you signifying when you tell that story? Are you trying to bring focus to you and make it all about you now? No, I am trying doing? to very clearly state that I have also gone through this and that I empathize with what you're going through. And I know how it sucks that I, uh, that's, that's awful. I feel terrible about it. Here's when that happened to me. I understand what's happening to you. And hopefully it was type two fun where it's not fun at the time, but then later it's a fun story. And then, you know, that my stupid, funny story about my flat tire might make you feel better about yours and might help you understand that this really sucks right now. But in six months today will have been hilarious. And what I try to teach neurodivergent people to do when I when I coach them is to immediately tell your story, but then turn it, turn that conversation back intentionally on the other person you know so here's the time this happened to me oh my goodness so you've established in your way that empathy or whatever but then you are able to say so what are you going to do did you take it to a mechanic did you call triple eight because neurotypical people really need to feel that the focus is on them or is back on them i would never tell a neurodivergent person well just don't bring up the story about yourself because we can't do that like, we nope. just can't do that. So how do you spotlight it back on the neurotypical person in the way that'll make them feel comfortable? Which goes to, you know, 
the long way to say that I think one of the reasons why we have such trouble with friendships isn't just face blindness or time blindness or object permanence, which are all things that contribute to the fact that if I'm not talking to you right now, I kind of forget you exist. But it's that when we do engage with each other, the things that we do and say mean such different things that Uh. as a neurotypical person, I don't want to be friends with somebody who every time I have a problem, they turn the spotlight on themselves because that's really selfish. But to a neurodivergent person, that's not what they're doing. And so if you're engaging with people and they expect you to act one way and you don't, you act another way and they look at that as rude or weird, which is a recurring theme, I think, often in neurodivergent and neurotypical conversations, that's going to inhibit the development of a friendship because you're not that person that they want to be around because every time they have a thing, you turn it and make it about you. And then you add that to the fact that you don't socialize in the same way. You don't like the same things. It's really hard for those friendships to develop and be maintained. So, yeah. So I think there's a lot that goes into why neurodivergent people often have trouble making and maintaining friendships. Yeah, I guess it's it's almost like a translation problem. Like friendships to neurodivergent people, that word means something different. Mm-hmm. And we're being judged on a different word. And that's just really not what we're going for. And I think that's that's why we go to online groups. That's why we congregate at conventions and stuff. That's why we seek each other out because there aren't that many of us, but we still need to belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. I think this is a good conversation today. I learned some things. I thought of some things. And anytime a neurodivergent can get new facts, Uh, that's a good time. That's uh a good time. So this has been, this has been great. In the future, we're going to have actually some wonderful resources for people to reach out to if they have translation problems in their own lives. For now, you can reach out to me or us at my website, coachjessicamichaels.com coachjessicamichaels.com for uh, a complimentary coaching consultation or to find great resources to help you with this topic and many other things that are often challenging for neurodivergent people. And so that's all we have for you today. We'll wrap up here. I am Coach Jessica Michaels. Uh, I'm just Ellie Michaels. I don't tell anybody what to do. It's for the best. Uh, This has been uh, Gifted Kid, Messy Adult, and we'll see you in the next one. Take care of each other out there. Bye-bye.